Ephesians 6. Uh, I did just want to take a moment, if there were any additional questions or comments of the section that we just did. Uh, chapter 5, um, verses 22 through 33, husbands and wives. And David will answer all the questions that you had <laughs> about that. Um, I mean, I'll throw a couple more out there, if, unless there were anything else. Um, <clears throat> I want us to kind of realize in that section, and it seems counterintuitive as we say it, but it is the truth of, of this passage, that marriage isn't really about me or my spouse. At the end of the day, it's it's not. The ultimate goal of marriage is what? Based on this section here, what is it supposed to accomplish? Being what Christ wants us to be. Yes, we are to be what Christ wants us to be. What are we illustrating in our marriage if we're doing it right? Correct. So we are, if we are living the way that we ought to, in in our flawed attempts, we are to be (laughs) illustrating the relationship between Christ and His church. Um, And it's it's hard. It's hard to wrap our brains around that sometimes, that uh, as beautiful and and wonderful as marriage is, and God designed it for us to enjoy, um, it's not the ultimate goal. Um, In fact, Jesus had to explain to the Sadducees, who were trying to catch him up in his words in Matthew 22, that in the resurrection, marriage isn't even going to exist. That this relationship that we have with our spouse is something wonderful, but it's meant to illustrate something about God if we do it well. And after the, the illustration is over and we get to see the real thing in all of its beauty, we, we won't, again, desire the, the illustration. Um, and that's not to say, that's not to say uh, that just because the type will eventually be done away with, with, with the anti-type, that there's no real value in marriage. Um, obviously, there is. And it helps us better appreciate um, what God intends for us to know about Christ's love. Um, And then think about it this way, because we'll come to this when we talk about parents and our responsibility towards our our children. Um, My spouse doesn't actually belong to me. And we talk about that when we make this covenant relationship, we belong to each other, the two become one flesh, um, and, and we are bound to each other, and that's all true and right, but at the end of the day, my spouse is something that I have been given stewardship of, and I'm supposed to eventually return her to who she belongs with. Um, I am preparing her as, as the bride of Christ, not someone that I get to keep for all eternity. Um, and so my goal is not to do whatever I can to make sure our relationship lasts for now and eternity. Uh, my goal is to prepare her for her, her true bridegroom. Um, and the world is going to, you know, not quite understand that. But it helps us keep a, a better perspective and a more selfless perspective in our relationships. Um, and then secondly, husbands are called to love and wives are called to submit not because we fill in the blank or because they fill in the blank. I don't love my wife because she has done any particular thing. And, and my wife is not supposed to submit to me because I've done a particular thing. We are called to love and to submit. We are called to fulfill these roles simply because Christ <coughs> has 
fill in the blank. And that's what chapters one through three is. That uh, if we're waiting for our spouse to be that perfect person, well, then I'll do what I'm called to do as a husband. Um, uh, that will be an unhappy marriage. Any other thoughts about that before we jump into six? And that's everything you ever need to know about marriage. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you're on to something too because sometimes when we read this, I think what we think is that, oh, you're saying that the relationship between Christ and the church ought to look like a good marriage. But the order's wrong. Correct. The order's flipped. Yes. Yeah, and, and so we are a living example. And, and God has put that on us to help the world understand something about him and about his son and about his church. And that's, that's a responsibility that we have to, um, to demonstrate that to the best of our abilities. All right, let's jump into verses 1 through 9 of chapter 6. And if I can have a volunteer to read the first four verses and then someone else to do 5 through 9. David, will you do the first four? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Okay. So this is in a section, chapter 5, starting in verse 22, and, and now here through 6, 9, of Christ-centered relationships. And so he's giving this example, now that you are made new in Christ, now that you're supposed to be walking worthy of the calling, this is what marriage is supposed to look like. Um, now it's this is what the parent-child relationship is supposed to look like. He even goes into 5 through 9, this is what the slave and master relationship would look like. Um, and we might modernize that. Uh, it is not apples to apples, but the employee-employer relationship may look like. It depends on how you translate that word in verse 5. Um, but really, the principles are the same in, in many of, of these examples that um, he's not just saying... Christ is only supposed to exist in your marriages and your your children, parents, and slaves and masters, and then Christ doesn't actually exist in all the others. These are just examples, um, and and then we're supposed to apply it in in all others. So, talking about the children and their responsibility, what are the reasons given as to why children ought to obey their parents? It's right. It's right. And, And what does he mean by that? It's right. Ah, because that's that's the question. It's right. Well, according to whom? Um, It's according to God. God has determined that this is the right thing to do. Um, And that is a comforting thing, because what does humanity tend to do with right and wrong? According to them, over time. It depends. It depends. It changes. It shifts. 
we're living in a culture, and it's not it's not new to this culture, but we see it pretty blatantly, where what was once commonly understood to be wrong a hundred years ago is now celebrated as as glorious and wonderful. God's standard of right and wrong doesn't change. So God says this thing is right. There are actually two more reasons in here. It's commanded. Aha! Thank you. It is a commandment, right? It's not a suggestion of God. I think it would be a good idea, children, if you obey your parents. No, he, he specifically commands, and he expects that to be carried out. And what's the third reason? <laughs> so they'll survive. So they'll survive to adulthood based on this promise that's made, right? It's the first commandment with the promise, which is that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. I did not have that in my notes, but that that is what was understood in the old law as far as rebellious children. I would not have lasted long. (laughs) It was a serious offense to show dishonor to your parents. And there were, you know, it wasn't just the the first inkling of dishonor and, you know, grab the stones and start chucking them. There there was a process. But if it was an unwilling, uh, you know, a child that was unwilling to bend, a child that was, was stubborn and obstinate and rebellious... They didn't live long in the land. Is that specifically... Let's let's jump to that one while we're on it. Is that specifically what it means? That you may dwell long in the land or on the earth, I think um, Lloyd's... Or uh, David's translation had said. What, what does this mean? Obey your parents so it's going to go well with you and that you'll live long in the land. Part of it is about survival, and in, in both in the sense of not being stoned as a teenager, um, but also learning from them and learning how to please God and how to, like under the old law, what uh, sacrifices are due, what the law is, sure. how not to get stoned by other people they didn't actually do any burning at the stake Um, I have a theme going on that's right, this is very dark Sarah Um, it's true, so not only is it so that you won't get killed by stoning because you're rebellious but God's laws if followed were intended for our good, right? Um, and, and it was it was understood that, and it is understood that if we follow God's wisdom will keep ourselves generally from harm. What else do you think of when it says that you may live long in the land? The ESV says it that way, David. Well, if you go back to Exodus 20, where this command is given, in verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Correct. And the promise of the land was always conditional. They could keep the land as long as they kept God's commandments. But if they failed to do that, God promised, I'll take this land from you. Right. 
So you think about how serious that was then. We think, well, yeah, the people were driven away into captivity because they became idolatrous, which is true, but that was not the only thing that they were condemned for. There were a variety of other things, uh, the forsaking of the Sabbath, the Sabbath, um, the abusing of God's sacrifices, the fact that they were divorcing their wives for unjust reason. I mean, they were disregarding multiple commandments. And he's saying, this is, this is one of those that I'm going to take that seriously. That if you children don't obey your parents as you ought to, it may endanger your being able to, to, to stay in this promised land. Um, a commentator said that, that Christians have normally divided the Ten Commandments into the first four being directed towards God and the last four directed towards their fellow man. But the Jews actually divided the commandments into two sets of five. They envisioned that five were written on one and five on the other, and, and that was done on purpose, that the first five were to honor, um, that the first five were to honor God and the other five were to honor your fellow man. They put this as equal. Children obeying their parents was actually a form of honoring God. And they grouped those things together. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that. There's a clip of, of the video from Bible Study Without Borders where Justin and Jeremy talk about that. That in all of these relationships, we need to not be so short-sighted that we only think of the individual in that relationship, but we're looking past them to the God behind this. And so we're not treating our masters in this way because they're so righteous and good. We're treating them that way because God calls us to it. You know, we're not loving our, you know, uh, I'm sorry, husbands loving our wives simply because of our wives, but we're looking beyond. And so the idea of honoring your father and mother was akin, according to the Jews, to honoring God himself. I'll actually pop those three Fred, up here. Can I make a point with that? Yes. Um, just like um, Christ and the church is an example of marriage, I think we also do see that relationship as God. God is our father. Yes. And we are his children. And so I do think that there is correlation there. Absolutely. And that's actually going to take us into, into verse four. Um, he doesn't necessarily say that in each section, but I think it goes without saying, right? You're patterning parents, you're patterning your parenting style after God and children. You're obeying your earthly fathers because you should be learning to obey your heavenly. So God is all throughout, um, each of, each of these relationships. So the land could actually be heaven. If you're talking, if you're if, it, if we're paralleling Heavenly Father and uh, Heavenly yeah. Children, that this, because he's, he's quoting what you could lose, and that this is such an important, like, image-bearing thing that we're doing here, uh, that it would have a twofold physical effect and a spiritual Right, because the promise of getting to stay for all, you know, throughout generations in the land of Israel is not necessarily one that's made to Christians. Um, yep, I still have diabetes. Um, but what it is, is a promise that we will dwell where God wants us to be, right? And so, yes, that could be heaven. Um, I think that's um, that's very applicable here. I saw a hand somewhere. Katrina. Well, that's kind of the point that the Hebrew driver makes is that it wasn't just the land that the, the Israelites that first heard that. Um, Right. Right. From the ultimate rest. Right. 
So in verse 4, I was, was there another hand that I missed? No. Cool. Just a question. It says that the first commandment with a promise. Correct. <laughs> I noticed you had it on the board, but just to clarify that. Right. How is that the first commandment? I put three dots. That means it wasn't finished. I broke it. So it's the first commandment with a promise. And the idea of, of the Ten Commandments, it was the first one that actually gave a promise along with, if you obey, this thing will happen. Uh, the first um, five prior to this simply state, as a matter of fact, don't do, th- you know, don't have any gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. This is the first one that's listed with with a promise. Um, so rather than provoking children to anger, what are parents, uh, I'm sorry, fathers called to do? Um, and what model of parenting are we to adopt? So I know the, the ESV says provoke your children to anger. What are some other translations that we have of that? Exasperate. I actually like that one better. Any others? Is that is that pretty much it? So we're not to do that. We're not to parent in such a way so that they feel like they can't do enough. That we're just frustrating them. Maybe we're being overly critical or putting too much on them. Maybe we're we're demanding obedience, but we haven't taken the time to actually explain the instruction clearly enough. And so they feel like they're spinning their wheels. Um, for, for no purpose. We're not supposed to do that and drive them to frustration or anger, but instead, what are we to do? We're to teach, but we're also to train. Correct. So let's talk about the different words. Uh, the ESV says, in the discipline and the instruction. What are some other words? Nurture and admonition. Okay, there's nurture and admonition. Training. Okay, there's training. So let's talk about these words. Why? Why doesn't he just say, bring them up in the Lord? He's making a distinction here between these two things. It's not two words for the same thing. What's the difference between discipline and instruction? Can we have one without the other? How would you describe them or define them? I just asked four questions. Which one would you like to answer? <laughs> So the idea of of the nurturing <clears throat> discipline, I, I've heard it explained as like a vine dresser or a gardener working with a tree or something like that, and how you're continually shaping and training it to do things. And it's a, in a sense, it's it's more gentle I, I, than you might. It's not necessarily a harsh thing. Um, but it's a matter of shaping as the plant or the child is growing. Um, and I, I mean, you could take that a little farther, and in my complete ignorance of you know that sort of thing, but it does require trimming off and cutting, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so there may be some 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 pain in the process, but you are working to to mold it into something better and healthier and stronger. Yeah. 
to reflect how you should with them. If, if it was just as simple as a sentence, right. with no breakdown, with no training, discipline, and, and other words so specific, you know, um, we wouldn't have an example of how we should go about explaining it. It would just be one sentence and a hammer right. instead of a conversation and a directive. Sure. Yeah, Chris. Is this another uh, example, like we were talking about with the husband-wife relationship, that it it should look like Christ in the church? Yes. And not the other way around. <laughs> and do we look at God and his discipline and his uh, instruction to us the way we think a parent-child relationship should be? Right. Or So what should that look like? Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of different ways we can take this, but I, I think what I'm hearing from, from Raymond and from Chris is we should parent the way that God parents us, right? And not the other way around. Our culture tends to think of God as this, if they believe in him at all, as this relatively passive being, this kind of Santa Claus in the sky, who really just love and grace and peace, and not harsh, like, that's definitely not God, because we have taught ourselves to parent that way. We live in a culture that lets the kids decide. And how many families do we know or have seen in the, in the Walmarts? They congregate in the Walmarts, um, where, where the child is in control. The child is calling the shots, and the parent lets the children lead. And so they assume that God does that with us. That isn't the way that God parents. What are, what are some examples you think about all of Scripture. What what methods has God used to train His children? I guess back to that um, instruction, <clears throat> the training and instruction, or the discipline and instruction. So just like we, you know, we have the instruction and we give our kids instructions, but if we don't discipline them when they fail to follow the instructions, then we're not completing the process. So, right. You know, God gave the Israelites all the instructions um, in Genesis 20, but when they didn't follow those, they were punished. Right. Harshly. Harshly. And consequences. Consequences, that would be correct. A a good way to put that because uh, you can, even as adults, you can manipulate the outcome of a system based on knowing what someone you know, wants. And that if that if that's if you're a people pleaser, because that's what it's mentioning here uh, later on, is that eventually that will fade, right? Because you're going to run into different types of people, and God's the same yesterday as today. Um, I feel like I'm rambling, but I just wanted to say that the uh, the consequences. That's really important because yes. follow up to um, I don't know praise, you know. Reward and discipline, uh, spank, all the grounding. Right. I mean, how effective can your parenting be? How long do you think it will take your child to realize that your threats never actually amount to anything? They're quick. They're smart. And I don't know if I've used this example in class, but uh, this was 18, 19 years ago. One of my first jobs was in Coles, and I, you know, I was encountering a, a parent who was counting to ten because their child was doing the, the thing that was annoying. And the, the child, it, like, it didn't phase him at all. And the parent got all the way up to 10. 
and then 11, and 12, and 13, because the child knew numbers don't matter. And the only reason the child stopped, and she was close to 20 at that point, was because they got distracted and started doing something else. Because the parent had trained the child, the consequences aren't real. There actually is nothing to fear, so you can just go on, keep on doing what you're doing. That isn't how God has interacted with us. Now, God is not, as some might want to paint him, someone who's just hovering, waiting for his children to step out of line and send the lightning or open the earth. And that's not who God is. I mean, you, you look at the prophets, the major and minor prophets. God again and again and again is sending people, begging his children to listen. And he's giving them instruction and giving them chance after chance. It took hundreds of years for him to finally send them out of out of that promised land into captivity. This is not a God who enjoys punishment, but it is a God who understands you don't just threaten discipline and and never carry it out. And so as parents, as fathers here, we need to bring up our children in the same way. You don't threaten discipline and not follow through. You don't give them instruction and say, look, if you break this instruction... That's worthy of spanking, but then not follow through because they'll figure it out and they'll push. They'll, they'll see how close can I get? Um, you know, Karen and I use the term that they've been pushing boundaries today. They've been trying to see will, will the fence bend or not? And it's up to us as the parents to say, well, if we said that this was the line, There are days where we can show them grace and explain to them that grace is being given, but don't abuse the grace. But there also needs to be discipline. I saw all sorts of hands. Let's start from the front. Well, we're talking about how this patterns after God. It made me think of Hebrews 12, the greater context of about talking about discipline. But in verse 10, it says, for they discipline, talking about fathers, um, us for a short time as it seems best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. Um, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Um, I think that's a context of how yes. God, God's goal for his discipline. Yes, so for those who are who have a translation that have training as one of these words, that word training is the same word as chastening there in Hebrews 12. It's the exact same idea. That in the same way that, that God at times allows us to experience pain, to encourage us to get off that path. Um, and that's the way that we explain it with our kids. We, we try to get them to understand you are heading in a direction that we know as your parents, if you continue down that, that road, it's, it's, it's going to lead to more pain. Pain for you and potentially pain for other people. So we are willing to inflict on you temporary pain to get you off that path. We don't want to see you go farther down that way. And that's what God does for us. There were other hands here. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to advise. <laughs> yes, keep keep your word when you tell your child you're gonna. there's a consequence, but don't give them tons of consequences. Like, be, don't say, I'm going to punish you for that and that and that and that, you know, all at once. Like, sure. You, you're not going to be able to keep up with that, neither are they. So. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Not every infraction is 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 uh, worthy of corporal punishment. <laughs> like um, Self control, even on the big things, sometimes you have to not threaten something you're not willing to do. Correct. Correct. 
Um, and that's, it, that is on us as parents to deal with them in an understanding way. Um, Proverbs, there's a, there's a passage in, in Proverbs, uh, it's 22 and verse 15, that says that folly or foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And I've, I've heard this passage used a lot to say, okay, well, spanking is appropriate. You're missing the point here. What is bound up in the heart of a child? Is it rebellion and sin and evil intent? No, it's just, it's foolishness. They're kids. And when they're young, they just don't know any better. And so it should, and it, it has helped me approach our kids differently. If I'm not coming at them like, well, of course you did this because you intended to break the rules because you're just a rebellious. No, you're, you're, you're a foolish child right now. And, and it's our job as, as parents to give you wisdom, God's wisdom. And so hopefully that helps us, uh, be more patient and, uh, and, um, offer more grace. I see Luke. Yeah, I think what you see in the world is two extremes. You parents who have no authority, act like they have no authority, or you see authoritarianism. Right. And so the question is, how do we go down the middle? And I think that the way we do that is sacrifice, which it goes back to the cross, which is this whole picture. Because if you knew that your parents would take a bullet for you, okay, they're, not, they're acting with authority, but, but you knew that they were doing it for the right reasons and would sacrifice for you, I think that goes a long way to being able to not be provoked to anger if you knew they were doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and again, just look at the character of God. God had the power to wipe us out at every infraction, but he He doesn't. He shows us grace way more than we deserve. He does discipline, but he also is abounding in, in, in grace. Um, he is slow to anger, right? He is long-suffering, and so we ought to be as well. This class is turning into a parenting class, which I assume that it, it would, which is fine. Um, there were some extra hands here, Chris. Uh, any parent that counts to three, I've never seen one ever get to three. Just like your example. If they're, if they're willing to count to three, they never ever get to three. In other words, there's never a consequence, just like counting to 20. Hmm. Uh, and the other thing with that is you're basically saying, okay, child, go ahead and be bad for one more, two Correct. more. I'm going to allow it until up to three. That's yeah. giving them permission. That's like saying permission to sin. Correct. And my my parents have said, if they can count to ten, they can count to one. Exactly. And so don't train them to wait. One through nine is right. permission to do whatever you'd like. That's and then it. ten is the... No. The thing with God's discipline, you know, the Israelites, or even with Pharaoh... Uh, if they didn't get the picture, he continued to escalate the uh, consequences until they got the picture. Right. You know, and, and keep all along saying, I don't want to do this. If you'll obey me, I'll let all through the kings, every one of them, be promised, you know, yes. basically a turnaround here. This doesn't have to end this way. Yeah. Well, uh, and even the ten plagues in Egypt, right? He didn't come into Egypt and just start blasting everybody. He even gave the Egyptians a chance. Right. He forewarned them every time. This is coming. And and if the Egyptians wanted to, they could have. He he gave them ample opportunity and and we need to to do the same. Are there others? Cool. 
Um, one more tiny one. <laughs> oh no, Sarah. That's okay. <laughs> so, I was just to say one of the things um, as a child who's never been a parent um, <laughs> that is always very frustrating for children of whatever age is when their parents are inconsistent, mm-hmm. and it's that you know we can go back to God is the same always and look at that concept. Hmm and say, see that that's the way we're supposed to be, whether we're, you know, an actual parent or someone who's just have has a group of children for 45 minutes all alone, trying to make them do <coughs> Bible stuff. Um, being yeah. consistent being, yeah. and not, not changing the rules all the time and, yeah. and making it so that you don't know what to expect. And they're not being consistent in their lives, and, and it's just yeah, and and it's not just children. We as human beings crave that structure. How many of us would like to hop in a car knowing that the rules of the road were going to change every time we got out there? We that wouldn't be good. We we expect and desire consistency, um, and and God knows that. You see that in in the, the period of the judges. Uh, leading up to the kings, where when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it was chaos. We need someone better than us to set a standard. Um, so again, I think it was I think it was Chris that mentioned just as the marriage relationship is intended to exemplify the relationship between Christ and the church, so should the parent-child relationship demonstrate um, to others the perfect love that the heavenly Father has towards His children, towards us. I want us to play a short clip of the Bible study without borders as we talk about um, this section, but specifically what's coming up in, in five through nine. And then the principles, you know, we'll necessarily read all the way through five and nine, but the principles that you see there is the sincerity of heart as they would to Christ. So verse five, emphasizing that verse six, emphasizing that not by way of eye service, but as servants of Christ, we are doing this because of who we are in our relationship to Jesus. We're going to do it sincerely, doing the will of God from the heart. It's got to engage me on the inside. And I'm, I'm rendering service with a good will as if to God, as if to the Lord, not to man. Yeah. So it's putting that back. Whether they respond well or not, whether they ever acknowledge it or not, I'm looking through them and I'm seeing Jesus and I'm doing this for Jesus. I think what we're describing here is we have, we have Christ as central in the picture. And you've got a master... Yes. And you've got a servant. And what we may often want to do is forget this and just think about this relationship. Yeah. But the master is looking through this and seeing Christ. Yes. And the servant is looking through this and seeing Christ. And this relationship is blessed because of the focus on, on Jesus. Yes. And there's a part, there's a part of the, the end here of this paragraph that is helpful and maybe it's, comfortable to not think about it a whole lot because we think someone might do things for the wrong reason. But, in verses 8 and 9, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether he's a slave or free. There's this, there is a reward principle at play here. Yes. That when we are faithful in our service, there are blessings for that. And God sees that. And so even if I don't receive earthly blessings, God sees that. And there's a reward for his servants who are faithful to him, who by faith do hard things. Um, and maybe we need to emphasize that some more. 
And it's not that we're trying to uh, bait people with do good and good things will come to you. That's not the point. But but there is a there's an eternal reward for those who are faithful in their service to God. Yeah, and then I think the idea here is that God is faithful. He's a faithful master to bless those who faithfully serve him. His eyes are always open. He's yes. always looking and he's seeing. And so don't think that just because I'm in this relationship where no one appreciates my labor. The Lord does see. Yeah. So let's not be looking to be pleasing people. Let's look to be pleasing the one who can reward eternally. And there's, in each of these, we we haven't talked as much about this in each set of relationships. You've got the husband-wife. You've got the parent-child. You've got the slave-master. But God says something to people on both sides of the relationship. Right. And so he finishes in verse 9, Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, <coughs> and that there's no partiality with it. So people who are in the position of authority in these relationships don't think that authority stops with you. Right. It doesn't. There's it's an it's this idea judge. the master's looking through and says, oh yeah, he sees. I'm, 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 I have a master. And there's accountability. Right. Absolutely. So he. So, um, examining that that illustration, and this one is the the parent child. Uh, Justin was specifically speaking to the the master servant, but it applies to to all of these. Um, how does looking through the other person to see Christ, responding to the call to glorify Christ, impact the way? That you behave in these relationships. And we've talked uh, about some of these uh, a bit, Chris. So that a child, a younger child, their only concept of authority of God is their parent. Mm-hmm. That's where they learn that concept of God. And, and that's the way, that's the only way it's demonstrated in their life. You can't, you could explain to them all day long, there's a God in heaven and, you know, and, and he expects this and he rewards and he judges. But that means nothing. You need a hands-on demonstration. Right. Yeah, and that is incredibly sobering. How do you view God? Yeah. And that's how... <laughs> If you view God correctly, that's how that parent-child relationship should be. Yeah. So I used to hear a a particular preacher say, uh, act, don't react. Maybe that's the case. It's not always applicable, but it is oftentimes if we're trying to do God's will instead of just reacting to the individual that we're dealing with. We're acting instead of reacting to that person. Right. You know, how many of us have worked in a job where the person immediately above us was unpleasant to work for or work around? Oh, that right? <laughs> Everyone can raise their hands, right? I work for myself now, so I'm not sure exactly what. Um, but I'll, I'll work for clients where you think, like, I, I don't understand how you're in the position that you're in. like that. And yet, should I treat them based on who they are? Solely? No, I should treat them based on who made them and who my master is. Even if in the temporary moment they are above me or have some kind of role of authority over me, I'm treating them like I would work for the ultimate authority. You can really see the world pushing against that right now with uh, 
just identity. Yes. And, and um, tribalism amongst things that we would have never thought you could actually divide people into categories. Right. And that if you stare at that TV or that newspaper or whatever long enough, how it's projected to you it leaves an imprint to where you actually stop seeing them through this specific lens. You, you right. don't see them as brothers, sisters, or the harvest field. You, you actually begin to see them as, a, as maybe a foe. Which is not true. Right. Um, I'm going to recap a, a little bit of what we talked about a few weeks ago for, for the invitation tonight. But we have got to stop letting the world define the terms. Right. <clears throat> it can it confuses us as, as members of Christ's body if we let them tell us what love means or what marriage looks like or what right and wrong is. And so... Um, we need to instead identify ourselves the way that he does. And so you think about this, put, put husband, wife there, put parent, child, employee, employer, employee, as, as we interact with each other. And Justin was, was indicating this. He said, sometimes we, we ignore this and we just think it's this. Okay. So as a child, I'm supposed to obey my parents. Okay. And, and they're hard to, you know, not just obey. Here it says I'm, I'm supposed to honor them, right? How do I honor a father who's maybe not everything they should be? Um, how do I show honor to, to someone who doesn't even honor God? Well, I do that because I can look beyond them and see the one responsible. Um, see the one responsible for creating that person. And they are worth more then I may be willing to to value them in the moment. Um, so that if if I see my wife as someone who is called to exemplify the submission that the church is to show to Christ, I'm going to do everything I can to help her fulfill that calling. And I'm going to try to make her call to submit to me a joy and not a burden. And wives, if you see your husbands as those who are called to exemplify the selfless love of Christ, demonstrated to the church, wives should do everything they can to help their husbands fulfill that calling and try to make our call to love them a joy and not a burden. But if we just think about, well, right now, she's not very lovable, and that's just really hard. And I can't get past that. No, we've got to look beyond and say, what What am I doing for the cause of Christ in how I'm interacting with this person? Um, and how can I make their calling easier? Katrina. But then what would we fill the bookstores with? <laughs> it's true, because every generation we get a new set of child psychologists who tell us that this is the way we ought to raise our kids now. Or we get a new set of, well, this is actually the best way to have a marriage. is, you know, Or this is actually what a marriage is. And that is not... Um, that's not good for us. I've got the wrong verse up here. 
So ignore that one. It's supposed to be the 6, 1 through 9. But in each of these relationships, starting back with 22, what elements of the old man are we to put off and what elements of the new man are we to put on? Because remember, that that's what he was talking about back in, in chapter 4. He was saying that we're supposed to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. We're supposed to put off the things that we used to do and put on new things. So what what things, and it's not a, it's not a perfect example here, but what things are we to put off and then put on in our marriages, in our parenting, in our work? What do you see? Okay, so put off pride and put on humility. Malice. Okay, and replace it with <laughs> almost anything. Anything else? <laughs> well, you think about verse twenty-two. If wives are commanded to submit, it means that we need to first put off this desire to hold on to control of, of all, you know, th- this unwillingness to yield. Oh, we're, we're called to to put that off. And, and don't think we're just picking on the wives. The verse right before it says we are all supposed to submit one to another. So we, we have to first remove our unyielding spirit and then instead be willing to submit. We need to... Um, when it talks about husbands and their wives, we need to first put off this this self-focused love and instead be willing to put on a selfless love for another. Um, we need to put off disobedience and be willing to obey. We need to stop living in such a way that we disregard instruction and instead be willing to um, submit ourselves um, and obey to others. In our parenting, we're supposed to put off this this tendency to provoke or anger our children and instead instruct and discipline. Um, why are why how does recognizing these behaviors as old man versus new man help us in these relationships? I mean, oh, there's one more. As I say, it goes goes back to that same little diagram where you're not you're no longer provoking your children not because it's bad to provoke your children but because no longer provoking your children makes you more like Christ and it gives you a higher calling a higher reason for doing any of these things I mean it's it can be a better relationship of whatever kind if you don't disobey the orders that you're given but if you learn have a habit of obedience because that's what Christ wants you to have. I mean, it's it's like kicking it up a level. Right. Yeah. And and not only are are we gaining something good by doing that, but remember what what are we without Christ? How have we been described in the book of Ephesians without Christ? Dead corrupted um, alienated darkened ignorant so in our in our marriages and in our parenting in our work in any relationship how how effective do you think those relationships are going to be how fulfilling are they going to be if we're still wearing the clothes of the old man 
an old man that is ignorant and darkened in our understanding, an old man that is alienated from God, an old man that has a hard heart and gives ourselves up to all kinds of evil. Children of wrath were called back in chapter 2. Those relationships are going to be corrupted. They're going to be poisoned unless we first take those things off. Um, it's likened to, uh, I've never personally had this experience, um, but if your clothing catches fire, one of the best things to do first is to is to remove the burning clothing, right? You can't take care of, of, of any other issue until you put that fire out. But we, we seem to think, well, I can just keep this part of my old man still burning. Um, I can keep this part of, of my old man, this corrupted part that's going to eventually eat me alive, um, and somehow my relationships won't suffer. Um, Christ knows we've got to first remove all of that. Um, the last couple here, we need to put off hypocritical service and instead be sincere. Um, my dad used to work in an office. This has been decades ago. But when they first brought in personal computers for all of them, this was a long time ago, and the button that you could press, do you guys remember this? You could press a button on the keyboard that would clear your windows and, and get you back to the desktop. And it was called the boss button. Right? So you could be playing games or dad had a pinball game that he didn't do at work, but he played at home and he always, they always joked. Well, I'm playing solitaire and I don't want the boss. So when the boss comes, I can quickly press the boss button. Um, are we working, but only hard because we know someone's watching? Or are we doing it um, in, in all sincerity? Um, we are going to be doing verses 10 through 20 of chapter 6. This is the armor, armor of God section. And uh, I'll be sending an email out about that uh, tomorrow. So thank you all.